grab your Bible and turn to the last book. We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 13 uh, once again this evening. It's continuing on the series of seven signs that we see in this middle section of Revelation. And what we want to look at this evening is verse 11 through 18. So we want to see what John has to tell us in his vision of the second beast. So let me read those verses for us and I pray that God will bless our study and we'll begin together. So here now is God speaks to us through his perfect word once again. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Now, Father, we we do ask that you would help us this evening in the midst of a majestic yet often mysterious text, that you would give us the discernment for which it calls, that we might know its truth, that we might love it, that we might hear it, that we might keep it, and so find your blessing. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever paid attention to the way totalitarian regimes operate, you know that for them to thrive, they have to have this effective propaganda ministry. If you ever find a kind of dictatorship that's growing in power, what you'll find underneath it is certainly in the experience and the lives of its citizens is this propaganda machine that's always churning out its information in order to get people to follow along. And so one story that I often remember related to this idea of the efficacy of propaganda is there was a story in Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union with a young girl who was very much part of the Russian citizens at the time who understood Stalin to be something of a hero and and a savior. And she was so zealous for the nation's leader that she one time had the chance to go sit face to face uh, with Stalin. And she was overawed by his personality. Uh, Later on in life, she reflected how he sat right next to her and spoke to her as the most tender and loving father would. Yet it was at the same time, years later, that she came to realize, unbeknownst to her at the time, this same man that was sitting next to her and speaking to her as a tender and loving father, was at the same time taking her parents away and marching them off to a gulag where they would die and be slain because of their opposition to the state. It was this kind of scene of devotion and deception. But that did result in, in death. And I tell you that because what we find in the second beast is the devil's propaganda machine at work. 
uh, that is one that is full of deception, one that calls for devotion, one that even has the power to bring death to, to God's people. And so, kids, I want you to know that what Revelation keeps telling us is, is that Satan seems to have, at least according to this book, uh, something of a favorite strategy in his war against the church. Because the Bible tells us that he has strategies, he has schemes that he uses against God's people. And if you've been paying attention in recent weeks, I wonder if you might submit a guess as to what is his favorite tactic, what is his favorite weapon in his warfare against the church. Because just as baseball players have a favorite bat or glove, golfers have a favorite club or golf ball, it's true, it seems like in the balance of Scripture that Satan has a favorite, cherished tactic that he uses against the church. That's going to show up once again in our text tonight, and that is the tactic of deception. That is the strategy of falsehood and, and error. And he's going to use it in such a way, our text says, and it's a vision, that it's even going to result in the death of some of Christ's followers. So if you weren't with us last week, what we looked at was the first 10 verses of chapter 13. And the devil's first beast. And it's important to recognize that what we said near the end of that study is that what you get at 12 and 13 in Revelation is something of a satanic parody or counterfeit of the Holy Trinity where Satan is in the course of John's visions. He's setting himself up. He who is the dragon as this parody of God the Father. And the first beast is this parody of God the Son. And what we're going to see this evening, and perhaps you might have eyes to see it quite quickly, is... The second beast is a parody of God, the Holy Spirit. And so our theme of the second beast is going to move along just like we saw last week. I want you to see four characteristics of the second beast and one call to the church. Four characteristics and one call and four characteristics that do begin, however, in verse 11. Notice what we're told about where this second beast comes from. John says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. My kids, do you remember where the first beast came from? Now you can look up to verse 1, and you'll see that beast came from the sea, this place of evil and symbolic chaos in the ancient world. But here is the second beast that's coming now from the earth, and the reality of the first and second beast coming from the earth and, and from the sea it is symbolizing for us Satan's desire for total, universal control in the world, that all the earth and, and all the seas belong to his strategy, and it's from this earth, of course, the second beast comes. And the first characteristic you want to see about the second beast is that he deceives the world. Look at how verse 11 continues. The second beast had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, students, you might notice how that seems to be incongruous. It doesn't match, does it? If you looked at it, gentle like a lamb, but as it speaks, gruesome like a dragon. And is it not leading us to realize the deception that belongs to the devil and his tactics, which is only further confirmed, notice verse 13 and 14. We're told, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them, to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So you notice verse 14 underscoring its deceptive work. 
as it wars against the nations, no doubt, warring against God's church. And it's helpful to recognize here that what we said last week was is that the immediate fulfillment, certainly I think the right way of taking the passage, the immediate fulfillment of the first beast was none other than the first century Roman Empire. And we said that it was under Nero, Emperor Nero, that there was this great war, there was this great persecution that came against the church. And after Nero died, it was as though the Roman Empire, this, this beast, this worldly pagan kingdom warring against the church, this first beast received a mortal wound. But then in time, it was only about 20 years later, that it seemed to rise again from the ashes as it persecuted God's people in the form of its emperor named Domitian. And so then if we take, and we're right to take, the first beast says the Roman Empire. I think we're right to take in its initial fulfillment, at least. The, the second, beak, uh, second beast as the Roman imperial cult and the priesthood. Because it was quite common what would happen in the kind of Roman sections of the world and the places and provinces and cities is what you would have is the image of the emperor set up in local cultic imperial priesthoods and temples. So you'd go there and you see the image there of the Caesar, you'd see, therefore, the image of the beast present there. And it's quite true, if you've ever paid attention to history, that when this kind of major worldwide power often rises, that there tends to be this kind of pagan, godless ideology that undergirds all of it. You know, we saw that most acutely in the last hundred years, even in World War II, with what was going on in the nation of Germany and how it was this intermingling of a pagan empire in the Third Reich with this godless political and religious ideology. But what's helpful to note there is also verse 13 and 14 is speaking of the signs that this second great beast has. If you notice verse 13, it's taking language from First Kings and Elijah, calling down fire from heaven. And by this miraculous sign, it's confirming the truth of the message. And kids, you might remember even from the book of Acts, is it not also told to us that the Holy Spirit falls as this fire from heaven and miraculous signs and wonders come forth confirming the truth of the message, underscoring for us that this second beast is something of this satanic counterfeit and demonic parody of, of God the Holy Spirit as it aims to deceive the world. And that leads to the second characteristic you want to see about the beast is that it urges devotion to the first beast. Look at verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. Is that not true of God the Holy Spirit too? Exercising the authority of Christ in its ministry, verse 12 continues, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And it's certainly true at that time in the first century that Citizens must worship the Roman Empire as the godly power on earth. Great divine and religious devotion that were given to the emperor himself. Which is leading to the third thing you need to see in verse 15 and 16. Or actually verse just 15 alone is that the second beast brings death to Christians. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So understand how this would work out in that ancient Roman Empire. If you didn't submit to the emperor's worship and the imperial priesthood, it was quite common in many of the provinces that you as a Christian would die as a result. So take it as an example. Uh, 111. The governor of Bithynia at the time is a man named Pliny. And he discovers in his area... 
this group of religious fanatics and zealots named Christians. So he writes a letter to Emperor Trajan at the time, and he's asking for counsel on what to do with Christians. And he says, well, just so you know, Trajan, here's what I've done recently with Christians. What do you think about this? And here's what his letter says. Here's the course that I have adopted in the case of those brought before me. I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time, threatening capital punishment. If they persist, I sentence them to death. What do you think of that, Emperor Trajan? Which is, of course, what verse 15 is alluding to. If you do not devote yourself to the worship of the first beast, the Roman Empire, or the second beast, this imperial priesthood that you're not going to follow, now then it's going to lead to your death. And surely you know your history well enough to know that throughout the ages, these kind of godless worldly kingdoms have risen because Christians have resisted devotion to such a worldly power, it has often resulted in their death. And students, you don't want to think that that is something that just belongs to the ancient time. Because it's very true, isn't it, that even in our nation of America today, we are, are so comfortable and culturated to our peace in many ways in terms of religious tolerance that we forget that many brothers and sisters around the world, even in recent years, are losing their lives as they are not bowing the knee to godless kingdoms and godless ideologies. Uh, you may not know this, but scholars tell us that there's probably something like 70 million Christians, as best we can tell, that have been martyred in the history of the church. 70 million. Over half of those were martyred just in the last 100 years alone. That the beast is moving among the world, bringing death to Christians. The fourth characteristic you want to see in verse 16 and 17 is it creates economic discrimination. Look at what we're told. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And it's here really in verse 16 through 18 that you get to arguably the most debated passage in a book full of debated passages. You know, I grew up in a church context that was very much oriented to the end times, Sending in no small number of you know, student Sunday school classes on the book of Revelation. I can't tell you the number of conversations I feel like I came home with on a Sunday to my parents saying, we have finally discovered what the mark of the beast is. And maybe you remember these from your own experience. You know, For a time, it was going to be this chip that was inserted either on our forehead or in our wrists, or it was going to be a chip that was on a credit card, or you may have paid attention to enough of these headlines to recognize that many of those same people today say that a pandemic vaccination card is nothing other than the mark of the beast. It's most common throughout history, however, to say the, the mark of the beast was Roman imperial currency in the first century, because it was on that currency that the emperor's face was placed. And without, of course, that image of the beast in your hand used from your pocket, you would never be able to buy anything. And that's certainly possible. I'm not so sure that I would ever want to be too dogmatic on many of these things. But whatever the exact nature is of this mark of the beast, what's clear, of course, in the course of this text is that the second beast is bringing this kind of economic discrimination and designation of Christians. 
Doesn't matter your status, doesn't matter your wealth, doesn't matter your influence, whatever it is, if you don't bow to the systems of the world and just the pagan religious ideology of the time, then you can expect that it's going to go hard for you in the world. And that's quite true, isn't it? That it's even in our relatively comfortable context, a desire to live a consistent Christianity makes it kind of hard to intermingle with a pagan society. Because why would the beast want Christians to thrive in the world? So these, of course, are the marks of this second beast, a satanic counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. There's the mark of deceiving the world. There's the mark of urging devotion to the first beast. There's the mark of bringing death to Christians. And fourthly and finally, there's this mark of creating economic discrimination, which leads then to the one call to the church. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Certainly it calls for discernment, doesn't it? When you think, let the one who has understanding calculate the meaning of the number 666. If there have been no small number of possibilities for The mark of the beast in Christian history, there are even more possibilities for the man of 666 in Christian history. If a recent scholar just evaluated the kind of eschatological literature from 1560 to 1830, only in the nation of England, and discovered in those books no less than 100 different suggestions and solutions for the man of 666. Even recently in our side of the world, just in the last 100 years, many people thought, The name of Kaiser or Hitler added up to 666. And students, here's what you need to know that's going on partly here and why it's quite difficult to discern and understand because many ancient cultures didn't have letters and numbers. They only had letters. And so what you would end up doing is you have letters that substitute for numbers. Thus, certain letters equaled a certain numeric value. So you would say, for example, in English, the letter A just equals the numeric value of 1. And B is 2, C is 3, so on and so forth. So then when you see a name whose letters add up to 666, you then begin to theorize what names have letters whose numeric value adds up to 666. The most common interpretation in Christian history is that it's none other than just Nero himself, because the Hebrew transliteration of his name, which yields Nero uh, Caesar, it just adds up to 666. And that's possible. I'm not so sure that's actually true for a variety of different reasons you might ask me about later. I do think, again, it's important for us to not to be so preoccupied with the literal weeds of the text, recognizing that we've already had the occasion a number of times throughout Revelation to say that numbers in Revelations have symbolic, figurative value. Uh, We've talked about that a number of different times. And you'll begin to understand, I think, actually, what potentially might be this significant symbolism of the number 666 when you recognize, of course, in Revelation, the number of perfection, seven, 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 repeated three times, it's perfect perfection. And you might not know that the early Christians recognized that in Greek, the name Jesus added up to the number of 888. And they celebrated, of course, the Lord's Day as the eighth day, this kind of inauguration of new creation. So it's why even many scholars today would say that this number 666 is just representative of perhaps the man of sin, perhaps the Antichrist, or maybe just at the most basic foundational level, just the complete sinlessness 
of Satan's scheme, because in his parody of 888 or 777, he's fallen short. But whatever, of course, the number means, I just would want to focus your attention on the first phrase of verse 18. This calls for wisdom. You cannot, the church cannot, defy the beasts without discernment. You cannot war against the devil without wisdom. You must live in the world, as Paul says in Ephesians, because the days are evil, walking in wisdom. I wonder when the last time was that you, you prayed earnestly for, for discernment to live faithfully. You prayed earnestly for wisdom to fight the good fight of faith. This is the one call for the church, discernment, as we respond to the second beast. Some of you might remember to almost 20 years ago, when in the wake of the September 11th, 2001 attacks struck our country, our government leaders initiated something that became known as the Homeland Security Advisory System. <clears throat> it was this kind of five-tier alert that was, that was meant to notify us of looming terrorist attack and the potential, potential gravity of it. So you had these five tiers moving from low risk to severe risk. Some of you might know the colors went from what was it, green, blue, and yellow, and then orange, and then red, red being a severe attack. In a reverent sense, I want you to see Revelation 12 and 13 as giving us something of a spiritual advisory system for the church's life here in this world, because what you get in Revelation 12 and 13, of course, no doubt through bizarre and symbolic imagery, is one of the most striking texts in all of Scripture about the reality of warfare that belongs to our life. In Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to close, I want you to see a couple of things about this warfare. In some ways, as we zoom out just from our text and take chapter 12 and 13 as a whole in view, I want you to see, first of all, the time of this war. The time of this war. Because if you glance back to chapter 12, well, what you'll know is a couple of different times it speaks of the timing of this warfare. You see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 14. You see, of course, last week we noticed the same thing in verse 5 of chapter 13. All of these time periods, speaking of the exact same length of time, which we've said multiple times now in our study of Revelation, represents the period between the comings of Jesus Christ. It's coming to heaven in His ascension. It's coming from heaven in His last return. And so what's the time of this war? Well, kids, the time is now. Like if you took Revelation as a genuine spiritual advisory system, you would know that we are always and only living in a red alert phase. The church is the church militant. The church is thus always on this war footing on a spiritual ground that we might not always believe it. And perhaps it's because Satan is working well in his deception against us. But maybe even in our context, one of the ways in which we've succumbed to Satan's strategies and schemes is that we actually don't think we're at war because we don't see it in the same way here as other saints around the world might see it, but uh, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. The time of this war is now. Number two, the trial of this war. Does it not tell us again in verse 15, as we've had the occasion so many times to notice in the study of Revelation, that the church militant, this age of the church warring against Satan, is an age in which many martyrs will come. Men and women, boys and girls, will lose their life because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. This chapter 12 so wondrously places it and puts it 
that they loved not their lives even unto death. Instead, they held fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ and clinged to the blood of the Lamb. Uh, which then leads to the third and final thing you need to see, not just the time and the trial, but the triumph, the triumph of this war. It's stashed away, isn't it? We're relatively in the middle in the first half of these two wonderful chapters, but what we know and we always are meant to see in Revelation whenever we encounter these passages of warfare that are going to show up again is that Jesus has already fought the war, that he has already won. So therefore, there is an ability for the Christian today to persevere, to believe, to have discernment, because Christ has already cast Satan out. Thus we can sing, can't we, in the midst of this warfare? A prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. One word shall fail him. That word has been spoken, and that word continues to be spoken, even as the war rages around us at all times. For the war is one through no means other than the name of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we do help. Ask that you would help us to abound in perseverance, abound in faith, abound in discernment, wisdom as we want to wage war, as we want to fight the good fight of faith. Help us, we pray, not to be deceived by the schemes of the devil, succumb to the ways of the world that we might be found diligent and faithful at the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. So do let us fight this warfare with the armor that is ours in Christ Jesus as we walk forward in repentance and faith, looking always to his coming and living always from his victory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we do want to sing that great hymn of faith. A mighty fortress is our God, number 92.